as you can see today, uh, we're going to be discussing Mars. So specifically, Sam Galvano, uh, who's the director of the Lung uh, LRU, is it Recovery? Rescue? I'm sorry. I don't know. Lung Rescue Unit, um, and uh, and has his hands in a whole lot of different things, um, including the the Mars program, um, and with how many livers we do in this institution, and with the increasing prevalence of liver disease in this country. This is more and more relevant every day. Um, so with that, I mean, all you know, Sam, he's uh, talking about his background. is a waste of time because we'd be here all day because he's so accomplished. But uh, he's... Uh, thank you, Sam, for coming. Ross Carpenter is going to be here with him as well as a uh, uh, fellow. And uh, without further ado, thanks. Okay. Thanks, Mike. Thanks, everybody. So uh, we'll get started here. I just wanted to introduce Ross. So Ross is one of... Um, uh, quite frankly, in my opinion, one of the absolute best residents we've ever had in our program. And as evidence of that, his senior project was uh, a Mars talk, which is going to be the basis of half of what we're going to talk about today. So I, I just didn't think I could do any better job talking about this. You'll see the, the work he's put into this in the literature review, all based on several patients that he had. Um, Ross is now going to be with us, luckily, for another year. He's now currently uh, a cardiothoracic fellow. Um, he's got uh, an illustrious background of his own. Um, William & Mary, right, for undergrad, then went to Virginia Tech, and then just graduated our program here. So Ross is going to start this talk off uh, with a good, solid background on Mars, then we'll get into some practical aspects and take some questions. Okay, Ross. Thank you, Dr. Galvano. Hey, everybody. Um, all right, so getting started. These are uh, Dr. Galvano's disclosures here. Um, so objectives today, we're going to talk a little bit about um, you know, the morbidity and mortality associated with liver failure, acute and chronic, um, which is pretty high, especially we know at this institution. Um, we'll also talk about, obviously, what the Mars system is, what it looks like, what the circuits are, um, and then do kind of a brief literature review, because um, there isn't too much in the way of uh, intensive um, studies done with Mars, relatively new technology. So as far as... Um, Liver disease burden, we know these numbers are very, very high. So 75 million have alcohol use disorders, over 2 billion adults um, are obese, 400 million diabetes. These are all risk factors um, for certain forms of liver disease that can lead to potentially needing a liver transplant. Um, the global prevalence of viral hepatitis remains high while we have acute liver intoxications uh, as well as the non-fatty livers uh, as well. So as far as liver transplantation, it's the second most widely performed after kidneys, um, and less than 10% of the global needs are met, meaning those that qualify for liver transplantation that would get one. Um, and so that leaves kind of a big gap as far as supply and demand mismatch um, for needing and then receiving a liver transplantation. So just another, so some more statistics about um, liver failure, acute and chronic. Obviously, acute liver failure is a very high mortality, as high as 50% in many studies, whether that's from an overdose, acute hepatitis, and that kind of leads to, creates this opportunity for a bridge to recovery, meaning if we can get them through this initial insult, uh, potentially it could regenerate, they could heal, and they wouldn't need a transplant. However, a lot of folks don't get there, 
um, and have either acute transitioning to acute on chronic, um, needing a bridge to transplant option. And so that necessitates kind of both options, of which we'll, we'll talk about Mars um, and how we can help with get to where we need to be there. Um, the focus of this slide, I think, just again, a, kind of an overview of acute liver failure, focus on the survival there you can see. So um, even in the hyperacute, which has the highest percent survival, it's still 36%, um, all the way down to less than 10% for some of those. Um, and you can see that the Tylenol group in the hyperacute does, in fact, have the best survival. So brief history of the Mars system now. Um, it was kind of developed in Germany around the early 90s, 93. Um, it first was commercially available to be purchased in 1999, uh, marketed as this albumin dialysis system. And, you know, conventional dialysis removes all the water-soluble particles, um, but we didn't have a way of things that were bound by albumin or um, fat-soluble to take those toxins out of the blood. Um, is often used in conjunction with CRT. Um, so pretty much every study that I'm going to talk about, um, both are at the same time um, based on just the circuits that it uses. And that also can reduce cytokines and inflammatory mediators um, that traditional CRT would be good for um, <clears throat> eliminating as well. So there's three main circuits um, as part of the Mars machine. We'll see in a second. Um, but essentially, the first patient, you know, you need a, a standard dialysis catheter um, to take the blood out. It dialyzes at first both the um, protein-bound and water-soluble solutions um, that can then go through a traditional um, water-soluble CRT circuit. And then it goes through kind of the Mars component, which is um, taking that albumin dialysate and getting through the two adsorption columns. So there's a charcoal and a cholestyramine filter. And once the albumin passes through those two filters, um, it is then recirculated to use back for the um, initial blood gradient. So as you can see in this picture, the first circuit all the way on the left is the patient, um, and then having the water and albumin the dialysate come through there, filter out. Then it goes through all the way on the right um, through the traditional IHD circuit with the bicarbonate buffer. And from there, that kind of focuses as the CRT aspect. Then um, it passes through the two filters. So at first you can see the charcoal filter, then the cholestyramine second filter, and then it's basically been purified back to dialyze against the patient's blood again. So this way to recirculate um, the albumin as well um, is a way to minimize the amount of albumin that needs as opposed to some of the single-pass albumin dialysis systems that are also um, around at the same time as that. Um, so here's a video. This is the machine here in use. Mars, those are the two, the charcoal filter and the cool styramine. That's just a video of the um, full circuit in action there. Um, so obviously, the, we know the liver has a whole bunch of functions, um, and it's kind of it's it's impossible to replace a liver with a machine. Um, but you know, maybe we can, in thinking about what this does, filtering out. Um, you know, maybe we can filter out some uh, waste products, bile, 
Um, but certain other functions, the synthetic functions of the liver, such as blood clotting, things like that, um, might be a little trickier as to whether a Mars machine can help with that as well. But we'll go into that um, with some of these studies here. <laughs> so the early days, so you can see the early 90, or late 90s, early 2000s, the first couple studies that came out, you can see the number of patients there. So 8, 9, 1 hit 34, um, but pretty low, small studies. Um, and what they realized pretty quickly was, even depending on how, you know, there's no standard treatment, how many sessions, how many hours per session, um, they found that it really improved with ammonia levels and hepatic encephalopathy. So you can see all the significant p-values there of reducing the amount of uh, ammonia in these patients. So just to touch on this last study, it's had 34 patients. Um, they measured pre and post um, the treatments, bilirubin, ammonia, INR, and GCS. Those were kind of the big things that they were focusing on. Um, and they calculated in this very cluttered table here. But to summarize basically what they found, um, a significant reduction in total bilirubin, so 17 to 11, significant reduction in ammonia, 236 to 94, um, did not turn out to be significant, but you can see the INR change from 2 to 1.5 roughly, um, and GCS from 8 to 13, so pretty significant as far as, um, so some lab markers, some mental status changes, practical stuff here, that's what they found. Um, so there were, in the couple years later, there were a couple randomized control trials rather than just retrospective. Um, but for the most part, that was all they had done up until that time. So the first three kind of randomized control trials um, to see really what the effect would be on survival. Um, we'll go through briefly. Um, but the first case, 24 patients very high bilirubin, not responsive to traditional medical therapy. So they're looking at 30-day survival, they're looking at the hepatic encephalopathy and the hyperbilirubinemia. Um, and so what, um, what they ended up finding from this study was that they did, the MARS system did actually increase the 30-day survival um, and a decrease in these markers that was previously kind of established too. And so Again, a very small sample, um, but you can see the average survival in days there is 25 compared to 4 um, from the traditional therapy. Um, so pretty significant um, change, uh, reduction. So as far as MARS versus just traditional hemodialysis, um, a couple interesting findings in this study, also relatively small, um, but you can see the Mars um, is the, uh, the left two columns um, and compared to Mars and just traditional hemodialysis. And so it did have a decrease in creatinine, um, did have a decrease in uh, bilirubin. Um, but the other kind of interesting thing from this study was it showed an increase in the PT activity, the prothrombin. And so, you know, that might pose as to why you think, well, maybe the, it was not significant, but the INR decreased with just Mars, um, and that could be as a, a reason for why, that it did actually improve the percent of active prothrombin um, that they found. Um, this is the same, same uh, study, but two other, uh, for, on the left, this table shows the uh, patients with 
patients with improvement of their encephalopathy. So you can see kind of by, it's, it's, it's a little bit um, strange, but if you look at the table below, uh, by day three, every single patient, which is all nine, had uh, an improvement. Um, whereas even after a full six days of standard medical therapy, a third of the patients still um, showed no improvement at all. And on the right, that's nitric oxide levels in the blood. And so um, a little modest increase but or decrease, that, um, but it was significant. And the, the thought there was that's what helps improve presser requirements as well. So the first kind of larger randomized control trial, a few years later, um, they got over 100 patients. Um, the same thing, so that it, was, it was MARS versus the conventional medical therapy, and they looked at a full six-month survival. Um, and what they found in doing their data analysis was that if they stratified then further by um, Tylenol-induced acute liver failure, they actually found a difference. So overall, um, they did not, but when they stratified for that, they did find a significant difference in um, improvement and survival. And the thought was, again, that it's more acute, and if they can get the patients through the um, very acute liver failure, that they might do better um, once they recovered. They just needed a little bit of help getting through that period. So the first major um, trial that came out about acute on chronic liver failure was out of Spain. And this relief trial had almost 200 patients. You can see there the inclusion criteria, decompensated cirrhosis, um, very high increases in bilirubin, um, and had to have hepatic encephalopathy or hepatorenal syndrome. Um, they excluded them for platelet, low platelets, um, an INR above 2.3, DIC, active infection. Um, so a couple other things. And they were looking at 28-day survival. And so what they found was no difference from this. Um, there are the survival curves, and that essentially at the end of the 28 days, there is no difference. You can see the, those lines were pretty much um, identical as far as survival. So even though we've seen some changes in um, biochemical markers, the actual survival um, from this study showed no outcomes. Um, so another study um, around the same time, 2017, um, came out and showed that when they, they kind of stratified the um, survival by days and what period could we get them through. And so um, a week out, it showed MARS versus standard medical therapy. Um, as you can see there, uh, there were zero more uh, deaths after a week as opposed to 10. Um, and out to about 14 days, there was a significant difference in the two groups. However, um, when you took that out to the full 28 days, um, it ended up not being any difference. Um, and so this, this is the same study here, but they also, when they found stratifying it, the acute on chronic liver failure grading system, the grade one is essentially isolated liver failure. Grade two means you have two or higher, means you have some sort of uh, additional multi-organ system failure. And so when they really focused on that category, that's when they found um, the benefit of the MARS system. And so as you can see here, it looks like it's, you know, hinting at maybe a difference um, in box A between overall all patients. But then when you think of the between B and C, 
It's essentially the isolated liver failure versus the multi-organ system failure. And that's where they really found the survival benefit for the sickest of the sick patients. Um, so this was a study that um, was done recently a couple years ago here at Maryland. Um, and this was acute liver failure. Um, so usually either from trauma or ingestion of um, patients that came in. It had somewhat of a, ran or a standardized um, treatment protocol of three eight-hour sessions, and then they were measuring all of these different um, markers that you can see here. Um, and so did have a it significantly, as it was kind of established before, decreased, um, this one did have a significant decrease in INR, um, liver enzymes, uh, encephalopathy. Interestingly, the Apache scores um, did not change. So kind of similar to what we saw, and they did not look at survival. So kind of the, the conclusion from this study that they um, wrote in their paper was, you know, this, while Mars, this, this particular study hasn't shown um, an absolute benefit in mortality, you know, it helps normalize a lot of these physiologic parameters um, and is at least able to temporize the initial insult, which gives people time um, to make a course for them, or at least bridge them to a transplant, which was kind of the point to begin with. Um, so anytime you can buy somebody more time, um, you're increasing their, their chance of survival. Um, so just uh, so last year, another um, out of this institution, another study was published um, that was three patients um, that came in with fulminant liver failure from heat stroke. Um, all three of these patients were um, healthy male uh, patients, and they all had, you can see, kind of slightly different um, times to transplant, so anywhere between three and four days. But all three of these patients um, got to transplant, had a successful transplant, and made um, a full recovery with very minimal morbidity. Um, and so the conclusion that they, they came up with from this was, um, so it's kind of the same thing, but you know, the MARS system for these three patients um, with survival um, may have bought them more time to find liver donors that had this not been available to them when they first came in. Um, they, it allowed them to get to the liver transplant. Um, and so they also were touching on the fact that it improves uh, hemodynamics, cardiovascular um, support to get them through to either recovery or to a transplant. So currently there's one trial um, that is the ELISH trial. So that is currently going on now uh, in Europe. And this trial um, was actually studying the use of MARS in post-hepatectomy liver failure. So people having um, liver resections and seeing if that could also buy them time to regenerate um, or improve their survival. And so um, that is ongoing currently, so we don't know the answer to this question, um, but it'll be interesting to see the, the role that it plays for that. Um, and they're hoping to, you know, have a pretty um, robust sample size compared to the previous studies that have uh, been conducted so far. And they'll be looking at 60-day survival as far as that goes. So that's kind of the end of my part. I'll turn this over to Dr. Galvano.
Okay, thanks. That's that's a really great. I just thought that was a really great overview of all the literature, and um, you know, just to caveat this, this program is really a team sport, and I, I've recently it's been handed off to me from Dr. Deb Stein, who's really the medical director for this uh, since its inception here at Shock Trauma. But it's it's absolutely a multidisciplinary endeavor. Our the current Mars team is just that. It's a team of nurses, nurse practitioners, advanced practitioners. Um, Dr. Tesserero and I, um, you know, kind of try to co-manage and, and take call for this, um, and as well as several other of our intensivists here. So we're going to talk about the indications and management. This is actually the practical aspect. So you've got the literature, and I, I will say that, you know, um, great review with all that, Ross. That's exactly what I did when I was handed this off from Dr. Stein, is got on to PubMed, MBase, and did a lit search and read around 170 articles on this topic to try to get smarter on it. Um, yeah, having had some patience on it, but wanting to understand what, what really where we are. And you really summarize the literature. I mean, what you just saw there, I think, is represents the, the current state of the art. But let's talk about the practicality. So here's our list currently at Shock Trauma, based on the data that you just saw from, from Ross. And these are the things that we, uh, we believe are, are the highest um, probability to, to get some um, good clinical effective uh, outcomes with this technology. So first acetaminophen intoxication, and you saw that with Ross's data, but we it's not just to see everyone with acetaminophen intoxication, otherwise we'd be getting calls all night, every day, and 24-7. It has to be with um, other parameters that are there, one or more, INR 2.5, bilirubin 3, if they're really acidemic or they have an elevated lactate. Got to have one of those other parameters. And there's got to be some reason to think that, you know, they're not going to, they're not recovering in a normal fashion. I'm going to show you a case in just a minute that illustrates how this kind of uh, transpires. Acute fulminant liver failure in patients who are transplant candidates. That's the key term, transplant candidates. Um, we, we don't just apply this, obviously, across the board. Otherwise, in the MICU, where I know many of you work, we would be, we'd have Mars machines at every corner of the, the unit. So acute on chronic liver failure and listed for liver transplant. So you can see the theme here. They've got to have a bridge to something. As Ross talked about, that's really where this technology evolved as a bridge to something. And then, you know, obviously there's obvious indications for this. What if there's a liver transplant and something goes bad? We have that sometimes. Our transplant surgeons are the best in the world, but they deal with some very challenging problems sometimes, anatomically and otherwise. So a patient could wind up anatomically anapatic. This can also be a problem we incur, uh, encounter in trauma, uh, rarely. But um, that could be an indication to bridge to a transplant. And then finally, primary non-function isn't approved, meeting certain criteria of which you can see uh, an indication for transplant. And then patients with multiple organ failure on a case-to-case -case basis. So that's the one that really becomes the most controversial, right? Uh, you know, these are the patients that may have stuff like heat stroke, those three cases that you saw. Um, and that actually needs to be updated because there's been a fourth patient who did not survive. So that series doesn't reflect the absolute um, up-to-date experience. But we do have good experience with getting patients through some tough cases with this. Um, Gambro, you'll, if you go on, you'll see this. You know, they actually have this out there. It's FDA approved for the treatment of hepatic encephalopathy due to decompensation of chronic liver disease. So that opens up a huge Pandora's box. Again, we would have this machine at almost 
every other bed. Am I right in the MICU? We'd have this machine around every corner in the MICU if this was going to be followed to a T. But it is for the record, and if you see this, it is, it is approved. That's not how we use it at our institution. I'll get, I can get into some of the financials at the end if you'd like to talk about that. But there's reasons why we, it's a very limited resource, extremely nurse intensive. We only have one machine. And that one machine, by the way, uh, to, to our knowledge, is one of the very few machines on the entire East Coast. So that's just something that has been committed to. Dr. Scalia and, and the leadership here at Shock Trauma have taken that on. Um, so it has to be used judiciously. And in a single session of Mars, the costs are variable, but our standard three session, our three uh, three session, three eight-hour sessions is going to run at least around forty-five thousand dollars at least. The circuit alone is around three grand. So when you open up the circuit, you're opening up a huge cost that we have to be cognizant of. So we want to make sure we're using this judiciously. So what about intoxication? So we have, fortunately, we have Dr. King now with us, who I don't see him here, but he's a, um, a toxicologist, and he is uh, phenomenal. He's going to be helping us try to refine some of our indications for intoxications. The bottom line is, as Ross pointed out, Mars is for protein-bound drugs. Here's a list of some common ones that we see in our practice, but also the mushrooms. That's a classic and described in several of the cases that they've used this. Calcium channel blockers, we've used that here as well with success to get patients through uh, calcium channel blocker intoxications, uh, overdoses. So this is a list. So it's not, when we get into that other category, this is what we're talking about other. There's other there are intoxications that could potentially be remedied with this, um, with this technology overdose situations. Um, here's a couple caveats I just to put out there that our pharmacists, again, team sport, and they've pointed out when we do put patients on for acetaminophen intoxication, we've got to be very cognizant of our uh, N-acetylcysteine dose, dosing. So this has been described also in other folks. A lot of the Europeans have, have more experience with this than we do, but um, the levels are reduced due to that albumin and elimination of protein-bound drugs. So NAC needs to be usually doubled. That's just the pharmacological. Our pharmacist will, will point this out to us and make that adjust, help us make that adjustment. And then this, this is just an important statement. Acute and chronic liver failure without a plan for transplantation, at least at our institution, this is our institutional bias and our commitment to this technology and our patients. We do not believe this is an acceptable indication for Mars. Every case can be discussed on a case-to-case -case basis. We're always happy to talk about it. But in general, if there's not a plan for transplant, as Ross talked about, you, you can see what Mars can do. It can clear toxins, but it doesn't replace the synthetic function of the liver. There's nothing magical about it. It's, it's really a bridge to recovery or to transplant. Bottom line. All right, when we get into the actual management, and we have a whole guideline in this that I can share with you, and I'd rather share that individually with you. I didn't put that out there because it's still in a draft form. We're trying to refine it a little bit. Um, um, but Dr. Stein has created a, um, uh, some guidelines for use clearly, and we're, we're, we're going over that and reviewing that. But in general, when you put a patient on Mars, um, it's not like CRT where we kind of just keep running that circuit until we feel like we don't need it anymore. And you know how nebulous that can be. When do we stop CRT? Everybody has a different endpoint for CRT. And I'm not sure if anyone's right or wrong, but we all have our individual endpoints. With Mars, we have to be more specific. We really got to take a look at the ammonia, lactate. We do look at the creatinine, uh, the basic metabolic panel, and the bilirubin. These are the parameters that we would expect to improve if a patient is having a positive response to Mars therapy and is either getting better or 
hopefully getting better to the point where they can get a little bit better for their transplant. Clinical data, super important. The two big things that Dr. Stein t taught me was mental status and vasoactives. So you should be seeing your vasoactives come down, your hemodynamics should improve. There's good literature on this. That's one of the endpoints established in some of the other Mars studies that have been out there. But mental status is really the big one, hepatic encephalopathy. And I'm going to illustrate a case here that really, I think, will hit that home. Some other management tips. So you know that we here at Shock Trauma use a lot of, University of Maryland rather, use a lot of thromboelastography. And there are several papers describing this use in Mars. Uh, still needs more investigation. Can be very helpful for detecting fibrinolysis. So um, it can be tricky on the Mars circuit because these patients are coagulopathic, as we know. However, we usually have to anticoagulate the circuit with heparin. Not always. There's some things we can, other things we can do. We could use citrate if we have it in-house and have enough calcium to counteract the problems we can incur with that. You can use heparin-free sessions. They have been described, and you know that we do that here with our CRRT. And they're actually, um, and just other, other caveats, you know, it's talking about expanding indications. If there's a patient, you know, who's got acute fatty liver or pregnancy, you know, that could be one of the um, kind of the oddball indications. There's at least one case report where they've used that. But um, that's kind of an oddball statement to put in this slide. I'm really talking about management, and we threw, I threw that in there. So, But the point is, with management, um, thromboelastography can be helpful, and um, but we do generally try to heparinize the circuit. The main reason for that is because, again, that... Um, that filter is, is expensive, and it's not something we, we really can swap out. The other thing is that machine that Ross showed you, the video, um, that was a video taken here. You can see how sophisticated this is. Now, the CRT machine is, is enough of a setup. Our nurses are really good at setting that up quickly. But Mars is a whole other animal. This thing takes a long time to prime. Um, and also, another caveat that we should all be aware of is if you don't have access. So if we mobilize the Mars team, and we call in, we actually have a one-to-one -one nurse just for Mars. That's why, one of the reasons it's so expensive. That's what it takes. It takes one nurse to actually manage that circuit. And um, if we don't have access, so you've called us, we've agreed, it's a Mars candidate, we're going to do it. you got to have access. So that's super important. And the access is a dialysis access, um, just like we would use for uh, continuous renal replacement therapy. But if that's not done and, you're, and, you're, and we're fiddling around with that, now we've got a nurse who's on the, on the clock, that's just something you got to consider. But once we have access, once we've mobilized the team, this is these are some general settings. I'm going to leave this up here just for a second, but I, I, this isn't anything anyone's going to remember. What you'll see here are several of our settings are very similar to what we would use for CVVHDF. Um, and we, we have to adjust some things as we come off this. But um, these are some general, these are, these are all really parameters that we would input off the guideline into the order set. I, I don't think it's worth belaboring all this, but just so you know that there are settings that we would follow for this. Some common problems that we can see. So paradoxically, these patients are, again, we're, we're heparinizing patients that are uh, already coagulopathic, and they can get more coagulopathic. Um, so... Predictors of that could be D-dimer levels. We don't generally always get those, but if we remember to get them and have them, you could trend them. Certainly a higher INR and higher age are all associated with more bleeding risk on Mars. Um, but these are common coagula uh, common problems we see on Mars in terms of coagulopathy. And, you know, we don't have it figured out. We, we often will send uh, a tag and try to make the most judicious decisions we can. We usually don't try to overcorrect things to 
quote unquote normal levels, but we try to get closer to normal if we can. And then, of course, just looking at the patient. Are they oozing from other sites? You know, standard stuff that we would do on, on any patient who's got um, extracorporeal life support. Okay, so um, those are just some management details. We can uh, take some questions here in a minute, but I thought maybe one other last thing to kind of just uh, bring this all together is to talk about a recent case. So here's a case we had. 38-year-old woman. She was in a motor vehicle crash. She lost consciousness and had LFTs on admission to an outside hospital. Unclear what was really going on, but here's her numbers. Her AST was over 4,000, ALT over 3,000, her T-Billy was 2.1. Not terrible, right? Not terrible. I'm not really clear why this had, was occurring. Um, and then unfortunately, she had to leave AMA. She didn't leave AMA because she was a terrible person. She actually had a family issue she was trying to take care of. Um, she was feeling a little bit better. But 10 days later, she came back. And I, I know several of you know this patient. Uh, several of you have taken care of her. Um, so this is a, she came back to about 10 days later with nausea, abdominal pain. And now her, her AST certainly isn't going down. It's now over 7,000 and her T-Billy is 3.9. Um, her acetaminophen level is 51 um, and her normal liver, liver ultrasound. So she gets in here. She's um, in the she's hypoglycemic at the outside hospital, hypotensive, tachycardic. She gets intubated. She's transferred to UMMC, our MICU. And she, at that point, is moving extremities but not following commands. And now her AST, ALT, is 12, 12 grand over 4,000. So you're, you're looking at higher numbers. They just continue to go up. And her T-Billy is now 5. And her acetaminophen level is 40. She started on N-acetylcysteine, all the standard stuff. Also of note, before she was transferred to here, she had seizures, pressors. They had a neurosurgery consult. They were thinking about putting a bolt in. They ultimately did not. Um, her seizures stopped with Keppra. She was taken off pressors. By the time she got here, she, her hemodynamics actually improved. So she wasn't um, a total hot mess in terms of hemodynamics, but she just wasn't waking up. Persistent encephalopathy, our liver transplant team was mobilized because they weren't, they weren't sure if she was going to get through this, if the liver had taken enough of a hit that, um, you know, that this was going to be an irrecoverable problem. Now, the issue going back to the, to the motor vehicle crash was possible use of acetaminophen in excessive doses, possibly preceding the motor vehicle crash and certainly after she was taking probably too much acetaminophen to treat her pain. She was trying to treat herself and um, probably did a little bit too much. That's the, that's the working hypothesis with this patient. So here's what happened. Now, the timeline for this is a little off. I will be very transparent. We decided that she would be a good candidate. She met indications. She, um, you know, uh, she met indications, bottom line. So we thought this would be a good candidate to put on Mars. And the big thing driving a lot of this was our liver transplant team. They were very aggressively working her up for a transplant. In fact, um, working to get her listed immediately. And, and you know how aggressive we are here with that. So they were working that issue and requested that we do this to prepare her for a transplant versus potential recovery. As you can see, she had recovery. Um, she had a dramatic increase. Uh, so here, here's the caveat with this. The arrows, her LFTs had actually started to improve slightly, uh, to be very clear. I, I do want to be totally transparent. She had had a little bit of a decrease by the time she was transferred to 5 South, where we do the Mars. We do it in a unit where we have expertise that's right there, available. And uh, she had actually had a slight amount of improvement. However, she wasn't waking up. 
So I, here's the argument I would make to counter anyone who says, well, you could have waited this out. We could have. But by using Mars, I would argue that we dramatically decreased her length of stay and increased her recovery. And more importantly, we, we helped our liver transplant team not have to tie up a designation of organs for someone who, might, who didn't need them. That's super important because there's a lot of patients, as you saw, that are not getting organs in our country. And if we can get someone off that list quickly so we can allocate those organs to someone else, that's a super important public health problem. So I would argue that this is a victory. Um, yes, we probably could have waited it out. She probably would have woke up in the MICU a couple days later. But she, her recovery was expedited, as you can see here, by um, the dramatic improvements and, and everything. Her Billy took a little time to come back. Her ammonia came right down. And importantly, her mental status improved fairly rapidly. So she got three sessions. So this is where you get into some controversy. That's our standard is to usually do three sessions. We'll actually do one session and then reevaluate with all the labs that we showed you, looking for hemodynamics, looking for mental status, looking at the parameters that we know can be changed with Mars. And the INR, by the way, is not always going to change. I know Ross pointed out some of the literature where it does get better. That's probably reflective of the liver maybe getting a little bit, some segments working a little better because we're supporting and offloading the liver a little bit with some, some detoxification. But there's nothing inherent with Mars that's going to increase the INR in itself, as you would know. There's no synthetic function in Mars. It's total toxin clearance. It's total dialysis for um, albumin dialysis. So she was she was listed by hospital day three. She was actually uh, technically listed, but then you know completed a course and actually did quite well and was discharged um, with a total length of stay of uh, about 17 days total. So um, you know, good, uh, really good outcome. The patient was certainly very happy, as was her mother. Um, so um, I'm going to stop there because I'm, I'm sure there's a lot of questions y'all have um, that we all have. But I think to conclude today that um, just to keep in mind, a lot of our patients are going to die waiting for liver transplants. And we really do have a, a need for a bridge to bridge to transplant system. Mars is one of those systems. It's not for everybody. It's effective at treating biochemical derangements um, with a bridge to something, either recovery or transplant. We have more to come. The ELIST trial, we're going to eagerly anticipate the results. That's going to be a while, though. That's not going to be done until, what, 2022, I think, Ross. So that's going to be a little while before we get a really solid, really, really solid study under our belts. But you've seen the literature. Most of it does support using this. Um, we're finding and expanding more indications for this. And I would say that the, the area that we're going to, I think, see the most growth is probably the intoxications, I think, um, and working with our toxicologists to, to help evolve that. So with that, I'm going to stop, and uh, we're happy to take it. I'm happy, happy. To, I can take questions, Ross. You did enough work today. I can, I can stand up here and take questions. Any questions? Thank you, sir. Thank you so much. Just kind of two quick questions. So it seems like it works. Is there any reason why we might be the only place in the East Coast with Mars yet not the only place with the liver transplants? Yeah. Um, Good question. I've asked that same question. Um, I think it's a couple things. Um, you know, I, when I look at the literature that Ross reviewed, it, and I think most people in the audience here would argue that um, for something this expensive that has uh, a very some variable outcomes benefits, it's clear that it can cause it can physiologically make some changes. But we can do a lot of things in medicine that can make numbers better that don't have ultimately have good outcomes. 
Um, I, I think that um, I think that the literature is still not as robust as we'd like to see it. I think that's the reason why institutions are afraid to commit, and the cost is really high. I'm quoting you, Jim, forty-five thousand, but it's probably a lot higher than that. Now, I will counter that with the the literature that's been done in Europe, where when you really look at quality of adjusted life years, qualities and dollies, and if you really look at this longitudinally. You can't focus on the immediate direct cost, although that's what the hospital is going to focus on and what we have to day to day. But if you really look at this over time and the benefits, there have been a couple studies. I've got some references here I can show you that have shown financial benefits. However, in a European system that has a much different insurance structure, et cetera. So that's a long-winded answer to, I think it's expensive. I think the literature has not been as robust as we'd like to see it. Um, and those are the only answers I can give you. It's very labor intensive and there's a lot of technical expertise that goes into this. I've only covered about 10% of the management. Our guideline is like five pages of nursing, 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 how to adjust the, the pump. You saw that we have to use a different uh, Gambro machine, that like the older one, the white one. Now there's a new one coming out. There's a new Mars machine that's going to be coming out, hooking it all up, making sure there's no air entrapment. It's hours of work that I'm not sure if other hospitals just want to invest in. Other extracorporeal support devices have centralized databases and organizations to track outcomes. Does Mars have something like that where we can look at actual data or centers or, you know, real life actual survivability data? Yeah. Um, well, I mean, the, other than the, the, the folks in Europe that have tracked this, um, you know, there's not like a, there's no like equivalent to like national trauma. Yeah, we have our own internal one that we do have, but it's it's small. And I, quite frankly, we're, we're not looking at, um, yeah, it's, it's under 100 patients for sure, under 50, I think, if I'm not mistaken. But um, the short answer is that's probably the way we need to go with this. And we're trying to do it at a local level, but yeah. Sam, just to get a, an idea, how much albumin is used per day on oh, for this machine? Gosh, um, a ton. All of it. <laughs> um, I, I don't have an exact answer. That's, uh, I, I don't have an exact answer for you, but I do know that like that's an important question because when we do this, it's not one unit of albumin. It's it's multiple, multiple units. Um, I don't have a specific answer. Is was Ron here still? He took off. I don't see any of my nursing colleagues. I, I don't have a I don't have an exact answer, but I do know that when we do this, we have to call pharmacy and make sure that they have. A ton of albumin ready. Um, I I will I will dial back with you on the answer for that. I'm sorry, I don't have an exact answer. Do we have goals on uh, numbers? Uh, you like to see, for example, in my month-long victory this time around, I've seen a calcium channel overdose and a few other things that we felt comfortable with, but we could call you and we could have brought it in early. Is that something that is a goal of this program to use the machine more to get people out of the hospital faster or? Um, I, you know, I, I think, I think we do fine with a lot of these patients. I think the, the point of today and this talk is just to be aware that we do have this. There's, we're always happy to take a call and, you know, go through it with you and say, Hey, you know, um, how are we doing? How are you doing? What do you think the trajectory? This, this last patient I presented is a great example. We could make, we made arguments both ways. Um, it, it was, you know, and part of it is. So the goal is, yeah, we do what we have it. We want to use it. We just want to use it judiciously and get good outcomes. We don't want to. So for every one case that we have like that I just showed you, we probably have three or four that we get called on in multiple organ failure, no really meaningful chance for recovery. It's just since we're doing everything else to support every other organ, why not throw Mars into the mix and support the liver? 
that's the wrong patient. It has to be something that we can recover to. Uh, but I do, I would entertain, I would, I think we should really be thinking about it for our intoxications because those, you know, those patients can get sick and some of them don't get through the, that intoxication. I can think of one patient we lost that we, we, we couldn't have, we, the Mars machine was actually down and we just couldn't mobilize it because it was physically down. And that patient already came to us transferred very, very sick. So I would, I would, you know, if you have questions, call us. So we have, um, this is more internal, we can edit this out later, Mike, but Doc Halo, we have a Doc Halo Mars, um, there should be a Mars consult physician on Doc Halo. You can just contact us and let's talk it through. But yeah, the goal is to use this more, more judiciously, I think. Yeah. Sir. How do you manage um, how do you manage medication dosing? Like specifically, if you have a patient on antibiotics, you know, the patient's septic, you know, how much of clearance is Mars doing to antibiotics and how do you adjust yeah. them? And, uh... and so that is super important. And um, I won't have time to go through all of it, but the point is, um, this is where having a pharmacist at your side is absolutely crucial because they can rapidly help you identify all the protein-bound drugs. Anything protein-bound that goes to that circuit is going to get cleared out. So some things that I listed there, diuretics, we're not going to probably dialyzing these patients. That's probably not a problem. But, you know, what if you've got a patient who's concomitantly on DIG or, or one of the drugs that's going through? The big one for us is antibiotics. So there's, there are several papers that have shown dramatic reductions in antibiotics and need for redosing. Um, but a lot of this is evolving, and a lot of it is a little bit flying through the seat of the pants, but I will tell you that you do have to be cognizant of any protein-bound drug. Um, a list of some of them. I have some extra slides here. You know, these are some of the things that we would have. So um, these are just, just a short list of some of the drugs there. But I think that's the question you would want to ask as the intensivist to our pharmacist is, all right, what protein-bound drugs are we on that are going to be problematic for this? Kind of just like CRT with anything that has a high sieving coefficient, you know, that you know you're going to have to redose. The big one, I think, for us is antibiotics and um, other stuff on this list. I think that's the big one is antibiotics that we really have to worry about if they're infected. Question I have um, is um, you showed us an example, you know, the prescription for Mars. Do you adjust it like is it, you know, weight based or is it like a one size, you know, fits all type of thing? Yeah, it's. it's it's kind of a one-size-fit-all to start, just kind of like, you know how we do, well, we we all do CRT probably a little differently, but it's, it's, it is a one-size-fit-all. These are, so we have standard recommended settings that we would recommend that are on that slide and um, in our guideline, and I, I can share that with you. If, certainly, if we have anyone that goes on, we will, that's what we will use. That's what our nursing folks use to set the pump up and program it in Epic. I'll get you to answer that albumin because that's a really important question. I feel bad I don't know that. Oh, no, it sounds good. Yeah, but isn't the albumin, it's a closed circuit, right? So yeah. The albumin is an enclosed circuit, so the albumin should be good for the duration of that session. Isn't that yeah, it's, well, it is, but it's a it's a heck of a lot that fills it. It's it's in um, you have to prime it, and I think some of it gets flushed out during the priming. There's a lot of priming with this circuit, and actually throughout the troubleshooting, if there's any air or any problems that occur, there's more flushing that that occurs. That that's the maintenance for the nursing that I can't speak to because I I don't run the circuit, so there there can be loss while you're doing it for those reasons. But it's a lot to get started. I mean, it's not like a hundred 
units, but it's a significant amount. And you got to make sure your, your pharmacy stock with it because it's totally uh, dependent on albumin. Oh, thanks, Mike. Is that okay? There you go. Thank you. Okay, so not not horrific. But we should, yeah, yeah. One hundred gram per what? It's twenty five percent albumin. One hundred grams per each per each session. Okay. Mike, what we got you up there for the pharmacy? Do you have anything else to say? There's a lot of considerations though. About is that spot on about the protein? Like that's the question I would ask you, right? I mean, we would want to know what drugs we're giving that could be cleared by the circuit, right? Because it, it will clear those out and not be therapeutic. Thanks, Sam. Thank you. Okay, thanks.